Join me, Professor RPG, as I sit down with friends, colleagues, and special guests as we reminisce and discuss role-playing games that left their mark on us. Expect to see all sorts, from western style to Japanese and even tabletop. So stay a while and listen, and let us trigger those memories of tales long since completed. Relive that fantasy you hold dear, and come along with us, adventurer, on this quest into the past. Welcome to the RPG University. Class is in session, and today we're drawing some cards and going on an adventure with Aether, a heroic fantasy RPG. As always, I'm your host, Scott White, also known as Professor RPG, and this week I have the pleasure of welcoming to the university the first narrator himself, he who gave birth to this world, the creator of Aether, a heroic fantasy RPG, Eldritch, Eldritch Crow. How's it going? Uh, wow, that was a very... Um... That sets an expectation in terms of introductions. <laughs> Oof. Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Crow. Uh, for the audience purposes, I use he, they pronouns. And you can find me pretty much anywhere on the internet by Eldritch Crow. So, Perfect. there you go. Well, welcome. Great to have you here. Um, as a... Uh, having gone to school for game design and loving the idea of putting together both game systems and game worlds... Uh, when our friend Anoriand uh, mentioned your game in one of his recent streams and you were in chat, you were so gracious to uh, come on the show and I want to rack your brains about what went in to uh, Aether. Um, but first and foremost, what's kind of like your nerd background? Like what got you into tabletop RPGs or games in general? So... Um... Fantasy novels were very close to my heart for the mm -hmm. longest time. I got into reading fantasy back in high school. Like, we're talking, like, would finish work early in class and always had a book on me. Mm -hmm. um, and thankfully, all the teachers who liked me knew that that was okay <laughs> and encouraged it. Uh, so I was very fortunate that way. And I got into TTRPGs, like, I would almost say comparatively late. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. people get into them into their teens or have, like, older siblings who introduce them and that sort of thing. I did not discover D&D and TTRPGs until my, like, early to mid-20s. Okay. Um, the past couple of years have obliterated my sense of time, so you'll forgive me for no, being a little bit... time has no meaning anymore after last year. After the <laughs> past year and a half, borderline two years, so... Yeah. Yeah, so I wound up getting into Critical Role, which is a lot of people's gateway, um, mm -hmm. into D&D 5e, and I actually wound up finding my first TTRPG group uh, online via Facebook, which I know for anybody in the audience, it's immediately going to cause a flinch, because normally those things don't end well, but now that group has been going for, I think we're on to four years now, mm -hmm. I got very lucky that way. And uh, we got to meet each other at Gen Con 2019, I believe it was. And uh, yeah, so that was that. I exclusively GM'd and ran D&D 5e for a solid, you know, like two, two and a half years mm -hmm. before I decided started designing anything. And I was entirely a homebrew GM, too. So homebrew worlds and all that stuff. Very cool. Um, professional background. I actually have a degree in creative writing and I'm in the middle of a master's for one as well. Oh, very so, nice. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of got the chops to back it up. Um, you know, I, I like to think I got the storytelling chops, but um, my master's is specifically in novel writing. 
and I'm finishing up my dissertation this year, and it's in, due in January, actually. <laughs> well, that sounds super exciting. I'm, I'm a I'm not professionally trained, uh, I suppose, um, but no, I'm a big fan of kind of the the uh, the hero's journey, kind of filling out and creating worlds and lore and all that stuff. And I think I have three different kind of stories blocked out like the big story beats that i tell myself one day you'll write that book you'll you'll write that one day um i mean so it's a nice thing too is like you don't have to write them right away you yeah. can just let them sit there and kind of simmer for a while yeah exactly but i'm kind of curious now because you mentioned two things brief side tangent it happens uh I am also a very big fan of, like, the epic fantasies and stuff. And I want to know, like, what are some of your, like, go-to authors and series? Um, so the first uh, fantasy series I ever picked up, and um, I will not be ashamed of why I picked it up. It's because it had a ninja-looking character on the front cover. Mm -hmm. um, it is the Night Angel trilogy by Brent Weeks. Oh, my God. Night Angel is so good. It is so oh, good, and it's Durzo for me. And everything. Oh goodness, love um, that series. Yeah, I absolutely ripped off uh, the concept of the Night Angel as a uh, NPC for one of my campaigns, mm -hmm. um, because there's just, you know, it, it's a feel good story for me. Yeah. Um, there it has its issues. You know, <laughs> it's written by a cis white dude author, so it's gonna have its own blind spots and things like that, and its own dead angles. But barring all of that, it's still a very fun story to read. It's mm -hmm. still got a lot of heart too, which I think is great. And I'm a sucker for like a romance thread in any major fantasy thing. So having multiple romance threads go throughout that series is just wonderful to me um yeah uh that was the first series i got into i read the name of the wind by um patrick rothfuss and that sort of keyed me into the fact that fantasy and specifically like modern fantasy and things like that doesn't have to lose its beauty of language to be you know marketable mm -hmm. in an interesting in an interesting way um and just kind of keyed me into the different ways to tell certain stories. And from there, like, I just fell into fantasy video games. You know, Dragon Age was one of the earliest RPGs I got into um, and all that stuff. And so for a long time, I thought becoming a professional, you know, novelist and all that was sort of the only avenue I'd have to express all of that. Mm -hmm. And then D&D &D happened and it was like, well, <laughs> this is mine now. It's a deep, deep rabbit hole. Uh, the, the want to be a novelist to want to be professional GM pipeline is real. It's yeah, I believe it. I believe it. I'm curious, like in your kind of dissertation or like kind of your class, did you find that a lot of your peers and kind of classmates in your degree also played D&D? Or like, was that a kind of common thread that you discovered as you went through your degree? No, actually, um, I didn't start playing D&D until after I graduated, so I never oh, had the okay. opportunity to ask. Um, it was kind of like just the year after I graduated, and I was feeling very listless and didn't really have anything to do with my creative outlets at the time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I stumbled into Critical Role and stumbled into the D&D group, and all of a sudden I had an outlet for all of that, and it turned out really, really well for me in terms of timing, thankfully. Um, 
So yeah, it was kind of interesting. And I'm not going to lie uh, in terms of background for the audience. Uh, if you want to be a writer, just be a writer. Don't go to school for it. They don't know how to teach it. It's fine. You'll learn more from reading your favorite people and learning how to understand them mm -hmm. in terms of what they're doing with their stories. I You'll also learn a lot from YouTube. Yeah. And it, as any uh, avenue of the arts, just, pra just practice. <laughs> just keep yeah. practicing. Just keep doing it. The Literally, the longest form stories I've ever told have been through TTRPGs. You know, most of my fiction before I decided to try and be a novelist was short fiction. Um, it's just a great way to stretch yourself as a creator. Oh, 100%. 100%. I'm uh, right now just in... I'm kind of GMing one game, and then that's quickly spreading into three games, and I'm tying them all into this central world that I created, but in different points of it to see like how the lore will change, and I can reflect back that one party did for a different party, so I'm kind of I'm excited about that. But just that thrill of inventing a world and your own lore and storylines to everything, it's... It's addictive. Oh, yeah. It very much is. And I've been very fortunate to have a group that kind of... I, I'm going to talk myself up a little bit, but no, like, I, I haven't played D&D for a long time now um, for personal reasons. And when I stopped playing D&D, the group I was in was really disappointed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things happened. We worked it out, thankfully. And so now that Ether is out and 1.5 is out specifically, I'm about to run like the first from level one campaign I've ever run with this group in the system. Oh. And I had one of my players come to me and say that they haven't been this excited to play a tabletop game in a very long time. And that got me right in the feels. Oh, yeah. Not going to lie. Hearing your players like like your game or like your session is it. It matters mm -hmm. for the for the GM. So if you're a player listening, let your GM know that they're doing a good job. If they are doing a good job, because they, they will yeah. appreciate it. Absolutely. Like that is the thing. Like it's the thing that makes me actually want to run a campaign is mm -hmm. hearing that. So, yeah, completely agree. It, it gives us invigoration. It invigorates the GM to like pull out all the stops to make up cool stuff for you. For the players. Uh, yep. No better way to, to get cool stuff in your campaign than to just feed your GM's creativity. Um, but but we are here to talk about your tabletop RPG, Aether, a heroic fantasy RPG. So give us kind of the background. How long have you been working on Aether? Uh, it would be close to about two and a half years now. Um. So it's been a long time in development, and originally I didn't think it was that long, but, um, you know, uh, Panorama happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what happened was um, <coughs> I was... Sorry. No, I, I just coughed. I said... Ah, I'm like, um, me. I uh, started off creating airship rules for a D&D campaign mm -hmm. because I was running a very JRPG inspired campaign and vehicle rules do not play nice in D&D. Yeah. Uh, they are just, no matter how you want to do it, they're very clunky. Um, at least in the writing and the creating of them. 
So that started out and then I was having trouble, like me as a GM who experiences extreme social anxiety, was having trouble sort of for my own purposes, codifying social interactions in mm -hmm. games and all that stuff. And I, it was the hardest part for me to improvise around as well. So thankfully I've gotten a bit better at it, but I was writing out a social uh, interaction system that would also at least lead into character progression somehow and an experience gain and stuff. And all of that happened. And just before I was getting ready to try and ramp up my um, design and be like, all right, let's see if I can make some money off some D&D supplements here. Um, <laughs> stuff about how Wizards of the Coast uh, treats their marginalized freelancers came out. Mm -hmm. And... This is going to maybe get a little heavy for some folks listening, but that was the point where I realized no matter how hard I made worked to make stuff for D&D, they would not want the work that I was doing. I'd probably never get a job with them. You know, I am a bi and non-binary creator, and while I haven't been out for very long, those things still very heavily inform my design process in a lot of ways, um, in a lot of small ways. And some of the changes I would want to make to the game, you know, as rules or whatever, just would never take. Mm -hmm. So then I sort of stopped playing D&D &D and I said, OK, I've got to put my money where my mouth is. There are alternatives out there and I have an, an idea for an alternative in my head. So I'm just going to go make it. And here we are. <laughs> uh, it's, this is the point where I say this game spent a year and a half in development before I released it, and it spent a year in development post-release. Yeah, um, you initially released it back in, what was it, 2020? I see on uh, Itch, 1.1 released November 19th of 2020. So was mm -hmm. that your initial release, or when did uh, version 1.0 release? Uh, 1.0 would have released uh, a little bit earlier in November of that year. So as of this month, probably like it's already passed its one year anniversary date for release. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't track your initial release date for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, but there we are. So depending on what date you take it from, if you take it from 1.1, we're coming up on its exact one year anniversary this week. Oh, how exciting. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, it's been a ride. I, I'll tell you that. I I can't even imagine. So when you decided, screw it, I'm going to make my own game, what was kind of the, your jumping off point? Like, what did you have in mind from the get-go that you was like, okay, this is for sure what I want? Was it, like, the character creation aspects? Like, this Aether uses a standard deck of cards for a bunch of its mechanics, correct? Yep. Almost all of them, to be honest. Uh, so this is where uh, you get a little insight into how complex of a history Ether has had. Um, Ether started out as a completely different game. It started out as a dice pool system initially, and I had never intended it to be released for sale. Because when I originally started creating it, I was like, all right, how do I capture the feeling my group has had at the table because i initially was designing this just for me and my group um so i was like all right how do i capture what we all love at the table in terms of being able to sit down and tell a story together 
how do I capture those high drama moments and the absolute like angst all of these characters they always make get into? And how do I codify that in a way that's easy for me to run? Mm-hmm. So it started out um, much more complex than it is now and much longer than it is now. And so Rough Draft, you know, came up with some stuff. It originally had a full class system before going classless. And now it's sort of found its happy medium. Um, like I said, it started out as a dice system rather than cards. And going from dice to cards was kind of a funny story because it's a story of having an entirely unrelated idea completely change the project you're working on. Mm -hmm. Because what happened was I hit a solid brick wall with Ether at one point in terms of development because I knew I had the bones of something good, but there was just a lot of things I needed to iron out with it. And so I took a pause on it for a little while and I said, all right, I have this idea for a really like quick fire one-on-one -on -one dueling DTRPG, like a one pager in my head mm -hmm. that uses a deck of cards and uses suits for certain things. I'm going to go and problem solve that and sort of hope solving problems with that back end solves the problem I'm having with either. And then I realized that I wasn't solving problems with that. I realized that the card uh, resolution system was the solution <laughs> and then i had to go rewrite my entire game oh is that all <laughs> uh, <laughs> the amount of rewrites this has gone through um so the resolution happened um uh, the math changed core stats changed and a lot of it got trimmed down and then i looked at it and i said okay well this already proves that i didn't need all of the math that was in this before so now we can slim it down a little bit and make it run a little bit faster because my big, I have a minor uh, pet peeve with D&D and a lot of, um, I won't say crunch heavy games because crunch has a mm -hmm. lot of connotations, but a lot of, you know, math centric games. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I find that the math and doing the math often gets in the way of having fun with the mechanics and doing weird stuff. Mm hmm. Um, just because it takes a while to tally everything up and everybody's brains move at a different pace. So it's not always fun for everybody to have to roll like 30d6 for an awesome hit, right? Mm -hmm. It's satisfying for a lot of folks, just not everybody. So for me, I was like, all right, how do I capture that feeling of satisfaction without having to do all the math that slows things down? So revisions happen, blah, blah, blah. The second big change to the game happened when I read the Lumen SRD by Spencer Campbell. Now, Lumen is a wonderful uh, system reference document that powers um, Spencer's Nova system and, uh, Lord, uh, the Light system as well, which are systems that Spencer built to mimic the playstyle of looter shooters like Destiny. Oh, interesting. So they are very focused on player power level and players being badasses and they're also very focused on quick combat and resource management and things like that and they don't actually do tactical like grid map combat at all they do much more quick fire things with it so i read lumen and lumen is ironically a dice pool system but it's done so well and so cleanly that I saw that applied it to my card basis 
and then immediately ripped the entirety of core resolution out of ether reworked it and put it back in <laughs> um and then that's how we got to 1.5 so uh i should also rewind a minute the thing that got me into thinking i could actually make my own system too was i got into very early play tests with tiebreaker a system crowdfunded by um, nick butler the creator and that system is amazing like it is built to do superheroes hands down and it is built to do them in a way where nick has come up with sort of his own design language entirely and he does things that sort of can map to other games mm -hmm. but you can very clearly tell he has looked at a thing and said oh but if i combined this with this and made a weird hybrid it does something cool and like the avenues that playing tiebreaker and reading tiebreaker opened up for me in my head and the feeling that you know nick and i were more on the same level and colleagues rather than designer and player mm -hmm. was that big push for me to really start designing ether in earnest so yeah uh a lot happened in the <laughs> creation of this game how cool um, but most of it was just trying to capture that feeling of like, um, oh, Lord, how would I put this? Most of it was trying to create a game that encouraged how my group and I were playing D&D &D uh -huh. because we were playing it very differently than the game was written. You wanted you wanted sense. your players to be like, feel like super badasses without the the tediousness or... Um, yeah, like my one of the biggest disappointments I always had uh, when we were playing D&D is my players get very creative and mm -hmm. I would always see some of them go, oh, wait, I have an idea. Ah, but that wouldn't work because the rules. Right. Yeah. And I always just wanted to look at them and be like, no, no, no. Tell me the idea. And so I built a system that was sort of specifically meant to do, you know, hand it to my players and be like, hi, this game is made for you. Mm hmm. Like, this is tailored to all of your expectations. And then I started shopping it around, and people were like, yo, this is good, and you need to sell it. And so I hemmed and hawed about it, and then eventually, you know, retooled it enough that I was comfortable selling it. And, you know, five versions later, it's doing pretty good. Well, that's great to hear. So I'm, I would love to hear. So what kind of walk us through a hypothetical encounter like i'm really curious to see how you managed to incorporate the deck of cards into like an encounter so how would a random encounter work uh that a party would find themselves in so um both uh, i'll put it this way players and you know opponents or enemies or however you want to call it function very similarly to the point where enemies even have the same core stats as characters just extremely trimmed down mm -hmm. so for players they all have individual skill levels all right so think of it like um some old school video games and uh rpgs specifically where you can have like pyromancy one and you can have aromancy three so you can have different skill levels with different types of things right mm -hmm. your skill level so if I had Pyromancy 1, tells you how many cards you play. And your skill level is the most important number in the game for a player. So basically means if I make a skill check with Pyromancy, I'm drawing one card off the top of my deck 
and that card tells me whether I get a partial success, a failure, or a full success. So the scale is um, ace to four for a failure, five to nine for a partial success, and then um, ten to king for a full success. And then there's also critical failures with aces and crit successes with kings. And they all do specific things and certain things happen. Now, if you're in an encounter, say mm -hmm. a random encounter versus a couple of wolves, there are certain things that enemies have as well. So enemies have just a generalized skill stat that they make all of their skill checks with. And so the skill check itself determines whether or not you succeed or fail. The GM has to assemble the creature stat block based on specific rules. But outside of that, the GM doesn't have to do anything. Um, I call in the narrator, um, but for layman's purposes, the game runner, um, doesn't have to set difficulty or anything like that. They just have to glance at the creature stat block and say, all right, they're playing this many cards to do this many things. Here we go. And we'll see how it happens. And then the fun comes in when you get to say, all right, so you try to attack the wolf with your sword, but you get a partial success. So we're going to say in combat, you're going to take one damage and deal full damage to the wolf as they sort of get a swipe at you, for example. Okay. And there's this fun back and forth because I wanted to make it... A, there, there's a really fun concept in the Lumen SRD where enemies only act if you fail. Okay, interesting. And so... I dropped a thing. Hold on. <laughs> and so I wanted to bring that over, but I wanted to make it a little bit easier in a tactical sense where now we have it set where if you fail a skill check against your target and you're in range they get to do a thing immediately. But then they're also going to get their own turn, and if they target you and fail, you get to do a thing. So I sort of pulled that into a more map-based tactical combat scenario by having it play both ways, effectively. It's not just one-sided anymore. Um, and that was... That's, that's sort of the cool. basis of an encounter, where if you were in combat, you would have it... You know, um, I have what I call unified encounter rules, so you can run a combat encounter, what I call challenge encounters like traps or dungeons, etc. Mm -hmm. Or you can run a social encounter all off the same rule set. The only difference is for combat, you add in combat stat blocks. Basically. So the GM or the narrator is going to go in. They're going to pick a couple objectives. Some of them will be one off objectives, you know, like protect this person as they get away from the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Some of them will be repeatable objectives, like clear all the minions off the board. Um, side note, there's four types of creatures. Minions are the weakest type. Okay. Um, so there's minions, elites, lieutenants, and legends. Um, minions are the weakest. They take one hit to go down, and then they're just sort of there and helping out. Mm -hmm. Elites are sort of what I would consider your weaker standard, like D&D &D monster equivalent. Okay. Um, you know, uh, a, a player could very easily go toe-to-toe -to -toe with an elite at any point, but the elite could get a few good shots in before they go down. Mm -hmm. Lieutenants are meant to be, like, on par with players in a lot of ways, um, but players will have an advantage if they get to sort of gang up on a lieutenant, for sure. And then legends are meant to be like, okay, all right, you're fighting only one of these at a time, basically. Um, so with those four creature types and sort of a paint-by-numbers stat block system, the stat blocks you add in become very quick-fire. 
you just pick a couple abilities slot them where the game tells you to slot them mm -hmm. and you have an entire creature built out um so there's no uh preset bestiary for this game Interesting. it's all based on you just take the basic abilities i gave you in the book flavor them how you need to insert status effects or elements as you need to and go and oh, then cool. um, it sounds so that, very welcoming to new players yeah it's um it's a game built to teach you how to run games okay like you could take my you know with the exception of how the stat blocks work you mm -hmm. could take my encounter building rules and slot them into just about any other TTRPG. Um, for example, uh, it has a progress bar, and then you have objectives, you have consequences, and then you have environmentals, which are just fun things you can do to inf to affect the battlefield mm -hmm. or environment around you. So um, if I remember right, the example I give in the book is if you're running a social encounter, your objectives might be to learn a creature's fear, love, motive, or secret, and if you do those things, progress bar goes up um, because creatures have social stats, too, in the system, which is fun. Um, and then uh, you also have a creature's disposition, which can change. And if you change it positively, you might get a success. If you change it negatively, you might get a consequence instead. The narrator chooses certain consequences to happen if the players fail enough times. And then they choose a few environmentals that players and opponents can use to their advantage. For a social encounter, an environmental might be, you know, spotting a picture of the NPC and their spouse and mm -hmm. their children or picking up on a secret in the area about the NPC. Or if it were a challenge encounter like a dungeon, you could run the entire dungeon based on, OK, objective one is clear room one. If you don't clear room one, which has this trap in it, you get this consequence, which is probably taking damage from the trap. And then you just have the final room be a combat encounter, fill out the stat blocks accordingly, and you have an entire dungeon. And the nice thing is you can do all that with one page front and back because I created an encounter page that is just like one page front and back specifically for that reason. Wow. Yeah. How were, how were you able to manage like, are there magic items and weapons and things? Do those just give you like additional card draws or like how have you handled those uh, sorts of aspects? Um, I, I have an entire crafting section in the book, which gives you a bunch of different effects that you can slot on to different magic items, sort of in the same way as the, um, the stat blocks are paint by numbers, the magic items are too. So they can give you a bunch of different effects. Um, the most common bonuses are card bonuses. Um, mm -hmm. but the way it works is on your character sheet, for example, you have a little table with the certain types of skills you're using. It has the skill name, skill level, and then it has a column for damage bonus, a column for range, and a column for card bonuses. Because the only time you use those last three columns is if any of those three numbers are different from your skill level. Because normally, your damage, your range, and your cards that you play are all the same as your skill level. It's all from there. So if you attack using Pyromancy 3, you're dealing 3 damage. That way, if you upgrade your Pyromancy skill, you deal more damage, you get more range, which is range is tracked in zones, and it's well explained. Mm -hmm. And 
your power level goes up, you play more cards. But if you get an item that says, hey, increase your pyromancy's range by one zone, well, suddenly your range is different from your skill level and you need a way to track that. So you use the range column. And uh, this all goes back, you know, you wanted to talk sort of design philosophy. Yeah. Um, as I was developing the game, I coined a phrase I call variable engagement. Other people refer to it as, as modularity. The one reason why I don't like modularity is because I feel like it can scare some people off. It's a very um, technical term. When I say variable engagement, um, I mean specifically you get to choose what mechanics of the game you engage with. Mm -hmm. So for players, for example, you have your skills and you also have abilities. Um, so your skills are what you make a skill check with. Your abilities are basically shortcuts. Your abilities say, hey, spend a resource, do a thing without a skill check. And you can do that thing repeatedly without risk of failure every time you spend the resource to do it. Mm -hmm. Or you use your skill check and you take the risk of failure. You know, that's the split there. You could play an entire Ether campaign and never once use a player ability if you didn't want to. So with... With so much flexibility and options available to players, how have you gone about balancing everything? What is game balance? <laughs> um, so th this is a point where I say... Um, I guess in any tabletop or really any RPG, you you can there's always an option to like mid-max or like find a completely broken combination that just turns you into yes. a demigod, so... You could, um, but there's also games where you absolutely can't do that. Uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games heavily prevent that by limiting your options to certain playbooks. Um, in this instance, I said, uh, I literally went, um, game balance really only matters with regards to, as a designer, getting a certain experience out of the game. So a lot of people, in my experience, when they discuss game balance, have treated balance as the be-all and end-all of good game design. But my metric for good game design is, does your game do what's intended? Mm -hmm. You know, does it, does it let players achieve what it wants them to achieve on the box? So for me, I said, all right, I kind of have a good idea of how the math is going to go. It's super simple. I have enemy scaling pretty much set from the few playtests I've done because I've had a year's worth of time to playtest it. So balance in that regard, I don't really need to worry about. Now what it's about is, all right, players get to make their own abilities. They get to choose their own skills. I have an entire method by which you can make abilities. And I literally just say, hey, we're going to emphasize heavy communication amongst players and the narrator. And we're going to say that as long as you are having fun doing things and as long as your fun isn't taking away from other people's experience at the table, the game is balanced. The and rule of we're cool governs. This game is entirely rule of cool governed. Precisely. And that's because like the game is designed to bring these high theatrics and big story beats around those are extremely hard to mechanize and extremely hard to quote-unquote balance. Mm -hmm. So I wanted it to be a thing of, okay, if you want to utterly wind up rewriting reality, there's going to be some kind of mechanical cost for that. 
the cost is going to be really simple. You're going to know what you're giving up to do it. And I'm going to make sure you don't have to feel like you're bending or breaking the rules to do it. I want you to feel fully comfortable doing the weirdest, wildest things you can think of and know that it's supported within the rules. How cool. That was it. You know, that's why the rules themselves have um, limit break mechanics uh, for those that are familiar with JRPGs, where you can just spend a certain amount of the game's core resource and absolutely control one scene of the, of the game and do a cool thing. No questions asked. Obviously with consent of the table mm -hmm. as the primary caveat. And then one tier above that in terms of players taking control of the game is players always have the option of making a heroic sacrifice where they give up something important to their character or make a major change to their character sheet for the sake of doing something, you know, on the level of warping reality. Uh, for example, in one of the playtests, um, one of my players was playing a character whose spouse had died in an airship crash. And they found the crash site and found the spouse's body. And the, the player's character was grieving. And the player's character actually had the spiritualism ability, which is to a degree necromancy. And so the spirit of their spouse was sitting with them and talking with them and was about to pass on. And the player looked at me and said, or the player actually looked at me and said, for the first time, my character prays. And I kind of flipped shit because the character was not religious at all, but there was things about their backstory that tied into one of the gods. So I said, okay, do you want them to respond? And the player sat there, thought about it for a moment and said, yes. And I said, okay, so you can either make a skill check for this or just spend this much resource and we'll say that this god responds to you. And so that entire scene ended with the character managing to resurrect their dead spouse. No questions asked because the player paid the cost. So mm -hmm. I was like, all right, we'll do it. And it turned out great. I loved it. Um, and that's the kind of narrative beat that the game really, really pushes for. Interesting. It, it It's so freeform and it's so much more of a you telling the story you want to tell. Like, even, I feel like with your rules and being able to do these large like you said reality warping decisions based on using resources it offers players so much more input i would say into the overall narrative than your standard dungeons and dragons campaign i feel yeah and yeah and that was intentional um a lot of it was like my time spent as a D, &D dm was most of it spent stressing over prep Mm -hmm. So I wanted to take a lot of the fear over um, improvisation, first off, out of my hands. And I wanted to take a lot of the stress over prep out of my hands. So, you know, the unified encounter rules came out of that. I wanted to be able to run a whole encounter off of one sheet of paper. 
And then the stress over improvisation is me going, all right, well, a lot of my stress is coming from how do I translate this mechanic into what the player wants to do? Mm-hmm. So how about I just say the player gets to do what they want to do and this mechanic represents the cost for it instead. You know, kind of reverse mm-hmm. the process of like, you want to do this, so you're giving up this. Or you want to do this, so you're just making a skill check. And there you go. And so by putting that weight on the players a lot more, it frees up the narrator to be a bit more um, present in the moment, mm-hmm. a bit more flexible, because now they can just go like, all right, well, you've done this, and I had this prepped, but what you've done doesn't change what I have prepped, or vice versa. So we just roll on as normal, and this cool thing got to happen anyways. Mm-hmm. The other side balance to that is part of character creation is you hand the narrator plot beats for your character. It asks you to get into that game space or that headspace of, all right, what do I want to happen to my character in this campaign or for my character in this campaign that my character might not know about? So it asks you to kind of set these things up ahead of time, and that's where the concept of omens come in. Um, Thankfully, I have my rules open right in front (laughs) of me. Uh, But the omens... um, are a thing that have been here since the original portion of the game. And it's probably one of my favorite aspects I've created in terms of design, where at the start of character creation, you come up with two things, like a good and a bad omen for your character, which will eventually happen in the campaign. And then those are triggered off of ace pulls, your critical failures. They basically have their own little tracker bar. And if you pull 10 aces then the narrator knows, hey, I'm allowed to use an omen in-game. So the narrator then looks at you and says, all right, which omen do you want to happen first? Your bad one or your good one? And that kind of communication is built up between the narrator and the player via the game mechanics. Now, with something like that, I'm curious, is it with this like a bad omen or things with the ability to spend a resource to alter and change so much of a game's like reality or revive people all these things is there anything really to stop a player from okay this bad omen is happening i'm going to spend my resource to like in your example like to pray to this god to change it or is it more on the a sort of honor system between the player and the the game master or the narrator to keep those things in check i guess like are there any is there anything stopping a player from just rewriting anything bad that ends up happening to their character uh no not at all uh i basically said all right the players are the stewards of their own experience. So in this regard, um, it's an honor system to a degree, but it's also uh, the rules sort of look at you with the expectation of, hey, if you're writing this down as your omen, make sure it's the thing that you want your character to go through because it should ideally, you know, I have a couple bullet points written here in the rules of what would drastically change how your character views themselves or what would reverse one of your character's core values you know what would change a fundamental thing about them Mm -hmm. or 
you know, we also have uh, character goals, which are your short, your sort of more short term, like, I want to do this thing in game. Mm-hmm. So it's that idea of, you know, you just do the thing once and it's satisfied and you create a new goal afterwards. But an omen can also be something like what would interrupt or prevent one of your goals. So you wind up in this scenario where you're creating omens in sort of a way where you know you want them to happen because they up your own personal drama at the table. And then you get to draw the rest of the players into that character drama with you. So rewriting them via the limit break is kind of counterproductive in a lot of ways because that means you're not going to be satisfied with the resolution necessarily unless that limit break or the sacrifice has a really cool character moment for you. So the omens are more um, starting points for drama than they are uh, problems to be solved um, necessarily. Is there anything to stop another player from using their limit break to alter your own or like another character's thing? Not at all. Um, And in fact, that's the kind of communication the game encourages from the outset, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you go through the introduction and the safety tools, I I wrote this game and it becomes a broken record with regards to communication Um, is all about stewardship over your own experience and also ensuring that you don't step on anybody else's at the table as a player so even in the omens section of the book i have a small sidebar titled omens as a safety tool where these mechanics basically give you a time like a timeline Mm -hmm. of when something bad could happen to your character and if you can't handle that well maybe you're going to pick your good omen to go off first that particular week It also means that everybody else knows if one of your omens is going to go off. So they can all say like, all right, if this is happening, we're going to have to make room for it. So it's a very sort of, it's a very different kind of game in that um, a lot of people sort of issue the concept of metagaming. But Ether encourages metagaming for the sake of improving the experience of everyone in a weird way. So it's that idea of like, oh, we could have this limit break happen to fix your omen, but is that the most fun and most drama-inducing thing we could do at the table right now? Mm -hmm. If not, then we're probably just not going to do it because that's not fun, you know? Um, So my players, for example, my home group, tends to go full angst, full drama, like (laughs) 100% falls to the wall all the time. We're about to do it. In a very weird turn of events, the first campaign I'm running from, like, level one with this home group is a gothic horror campaign, of all things. Uh-huh. Which feels very counterintuitive to heroic fantasy, but there's a lot of interesting parallels, I find. So, I'm running it anyways. And uh, they all chose characters who have very angsty backstories, and I love it. <laughs> um, and so, one of those things would be, like me as a narrator i'm going to have to let those moments of angst play out and then i'm going to have to set up challenges that either play against that or give them reasons to sideline that angst and say all right we have things to do Mm -hmm. or give them reasons to resolve those moments and push and pull that way and it's all just an awareness of each other at the table and so kind of etiquette and table awareness was something i wanted to teach and encourage with the game that's so cool. It what I really appreciate 
from what you've told me about this is the the intrinsic kind of nature that communication and almost trust that this game expects of its players but between each other um to not devolve your experience or a gameplay session into just who control who, who control who more or this back and forth i mean if that's the kind of campaign the players want but just how important it is that everyone is kind of on the same page with one another and uh it's really really interesting i mean i can uh, i can read you one of the sections from the uh, introduction and it's a yeah. short two sentence bit here that i wrote and it says ether asks you to define heroism on your own terms by choosing the evils you'll face it also asks you to trust each other and have each other's backs because no one becomes a hero alone. Oh, that is the core thesis of this whole game. I like it. I like that. I can tell you're like wanting to be, or you're going, you've gone to school and everything to be a professional novelist, uh, because that sounds <laughs> like something that I would read on like a slip of a epic yep. fantasy. Yeah, and like that that's a dust jacket quote right there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a little bit cheesy, sure, but once you start digging into the mechanics and actually reading through the game, you go back to that line of no one becomes a hero alone. And then you look at the mechanics and you say like, oh, no, oh, yeah, I, I can see this now. I can see this thread through the game where like one of the things... Uh, one of the things in the narrator's toolkit is um, giving players new omens as consequences for their actions. So one of the core aspects of Ether is I wanted to make a game where killing is not the default. Mm -hmm. So in D&D 5e, for example, you have to declare non-lethal damage. In Ether, you have to declare lethal damage. So if you are intending to kill someone, you have to declare that. And then you may have to deal with an extra omen as a consequence afterwards. You know, they might have a spouse that's going to come after you or a friend or their own ghost might come after you. Who knows? But that's the sort of thing I wanted to encourage of like your actions have consequences. Mm -hmm. Those consequences are supported in the rules. Here's how you show them. And then I also wanted to say if the narrator declares lethal damage, the player can veto it. Because just there's a whole thing about determining lethality in the uh, game prep section. Mm -hmm. um, basically, not everybody finds character death fun. So even though there are specific rules for, um, I call it retiring a character and when to retire a character, I went with that wording because it says, okay, my character doesn't have to die. They can just no longer be part of this story which is something I wanted to leave explicit in the game because it's something that is very much doable in other games like D&D, but isn't explicit. Mm -hmm. And I feel, like it, I feel like it just locks people into certain modes of storytelling that aren't necessarily needed to tell an awesome story. You don't necessarily need to kill off a character for it to be epic. That character can just as easily live through the fight and then say, all right, that was way too much for me. I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And or, in a lot of ways, they have 
emotional beats that way. Yeah, I mean, just as a great example, uh, everyone still remembers that adventure or that guard that was an adventurer until he took an arrow to the knee. Now, exactly, if he had just right? been a generic guard's body that you found in the field, you wouldn't have looked at it. But taking an arrow to the knee and no longer being an adventurer, that's meme-worthy. That's what sticks with people. Yeah, and the other side of that, too, is like sometimes your most memorable character is the one that dies doing something epic. Sometimes your most memorable character is the one who comes back from the adventure and suddenly has to just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's the thing, is so many stories like to stop without looking at how someone processes a thing afterwards. And that's a unique experience TTRPGs can have, depending on your playstyle. You know, Ether, Ether is very much a game for story gamers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're going to get maybe into a little bit of a discoursey topic here for a second, because sure. in my design experience, there's only two types of TTRPG players. There are people who sit down to play a game, and then there are people who sit down to tell a story. Sometimes those cross over, sometimes they all find happy mediums, but generally TTRPGs are marketed towards one or the other. This game is very much marketed towards the latter storytelling groups, and I'm not going to make any bones about that. So if you like a heavy math game, if you like, you know, more tactical combat, even though this can do grid maps and it does them pretty well, you know, you're maybe going to lean more towards D&D or you're going to lean more towards Pathfinder or maybe you'll lean more towards war games. And that's perfectly fine. You know, it's mm-hmm. okay to look at Ether and any game really and say, like, I can see who this appeals to. I'm just not part of that core audience. Yeah. For me, this game is very much those people who are like, all right, I I have my angsty, like, former Prince character and I want to see the drama we can get into. Let's go for it. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just a practice in knowing your audience. So when it comes to design, that's sort of where I... Now, looking back after everything I've learned, that's where I spin my choices out of, mm-hmm. is who is my intended audience. Yeah. and <laughs> And like you said, this speaks to a group of players that do want to really dive into that role-playing storytelling aspect Mm -hmm. now one thing i as from a game design perspective there's so much here that does so many unique uh new takes on the genre and you're clearly still working on it version 1.5 uh launched uh two weeks ago um from time of recording What's an area that you think needs some more time in the uh, in the oven or that you isn't quite where you want it to be or features that you would want to add in a later release? Um, definitely the character abilities and potentially with the new encounter rules, um, just encounter balancing rules in terms of numbers. Um, so like the amount of enemies you throw into an encounter and what types of enemies. I've got those roughed in thanks to playtesting, but those are potentially the things people are going to see the most errata come into later. Um, I don't really plan on adding any new sections or taking away sections because either 1.5 is probably the version that's going to go to crowdfunding. Um, 
with the exception of the errata that I'm talking about, because mm-hmm. there's always going to be editing mistakes or little miscommunications and stuff For like sure. that. There's going to be no big rehashes or overhauls anymore, which is what most of my version updates have been. <laughs> um, from this point on, it's going to be little changes, or I'll be putting out an additional file where it'll be like, here's some extra player abilities with some new mechanics you can delve into that slot in, you know, and I'll play mm-hmm. test those a little separately. And so it's really just down to player abilities and encounter balance for me um, because everything else functions. Like I ran an entire on stream campaign play testing this. We hit 13 episodes. And so a lot of the changes came from that. And a lot of the mechanics, you know, out the gate functioned as intended, which was very nice. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just kind of getting down to the nitty gritty. Um, I do know that. Uh, if players are looking for a very like map-based tactical experience and want very clear lines on this does this and this doesn't do that, probably not going to be able to do it very well with this game unless you get very detailed in your own descriptions or in the limits you put on yourself. Um, but yeah, the uh, the character abilities as like your shortcuts, I kind of intended to have a very um, you sort of have you have 40 or 80 sample abilities in the book. Uh And then my rules for it say, okay, here's the general guidelines for like resource requirements and what each of these does. Take these and run with them. You can change them however you need to, according to these guidelines to get your preferred experience out of it. So that's the kind of thing where like I have entire, you know, paragraphs on like, here are different ways you could have your abilities make you play cards. Like you could make a skill check face down for setting a trap and then reveal the check when the trap goes off. For example, you could bring in some poker rules or anything like that. Like there's a lot you can do with card games because they've been around so long Uh and you can borrow from so much to change your experience. But that also means that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of clear communication there. So that's where I expect most of the changes to happen going forward. Very cool. Well, I'll be anxious to see them. Uh, I can't wait to see all the uh, goodness with the abilities and everything. But for those uh, listeners that want to try this themselves, where can people find Ether? Uh, Ether is exclusively sold on itch. And I need to remember my uh, order for the link. Uh, you can find it on eldritchcrow.itch.io uh, and then specifically slash ether-a-heroic-fantasy-rpg, all lowercase. You can also find me on Twitter at eldritchcrow, and you'll find the links very easily because I yell about it frequently. <laughs> and down in the show notes, I will also be sure to have a link to the it, your the itch account so people can find it as well because this is super super cool sounding um i'm gonna have to get my myself a copy because this sounds fantastic i'm very very intrigued um about all this i'm glad i could sell you on it oh of course of course but we are to uh i'm gonna put your kind of creation muscles to the test here uh with tabletop rpg episodes here at rpg university we like to end things by either getting a little classy or a little racy. We either make a brand new class or subclass or a brand new race of creature. So, Crow, what are you going to want to create tonight? 
Uh, I'm going to cheat because I have my rules open. Um, so here's the fun thing about Ether. In character creation, when it comes to choosing your skills, you get character templates. But the rules specifically tell you that if a template doesn't fit what you want specifically, you can swap skills in and out as you see fit. So the concept here is you get a little table. It has four columns, one for each major category of skills. Uh -huh. Each column has four skills recommended in it. And then the rules say, all right, you're starting with eight skills. So if you want a quick character, pick a template, pick two skills from each column, and you're done. Right? Nice. So nice. for Makes me, sense. I've got a bunch of uh, stuff here where, you know, we have the animist who's sort of that natural druid archetype. We have the beacon who are the leaders, the frontliners, the people you look to for inspiration. You have the channeler who is your magic kind of sorceress archetype, right? And each uh -huh. one of these templates is here, and there are 13 of them. So there's not a whole lot I would add because I pretty widely covered the gamut in terms of classes. But I have a pet class in the back of my head that I've always adored. Specifically because they're never good guys and never heroes. It's uh -huh. always the necromancer. Nice, nice. So, and specifically frontline necromancers that don't leave all the work to their summons because usually you know in video games and other ttrpgs necromancers are caster types and uh -huh. they're squishy so yep. i if i had to do this and i had to go make a class for ether or make a character for ether and make one of these new templates i'd probably start with either my sentinel or herald templates which are, you know, your paladin or cleric type mm -hmm, mm -hmm, archetypes. Mm -hmm. And then preferably sentinel. I would keep the sentinel combat skills um, to choose from and then completely change everything else. Um, so for social skills, I would probably pop in things like presence, which is your intimidation skill, your gravitas, your mm -hmm. ability to make people go quiet. I would put in, you know, leadership is already in the Sentinel stat block, but I would maybe, maybe lean more towards it if I was making a character where it's like, all right, I am a leader. I command my summons and then I lead from the front. Um, utility skills, I would absolutely keep devotion because that's your, your sort of faith or your I stick to my, um, my principles, uh -huh. uh, social skill. And then maybe something a bit odd, I'd probably pick, you know, something like survival, because I imagine they get into a lot of situations where they're not allowed to stay at inns because they, you know, walk around with a couple skeleton friends all the time. <laughs> and so they spend a lot of time outside. And then for magic skills, you know, they're getting spiritualism as that necromancy ability and then probably blood magic because I, I'm a sucker for necromancy and blood magic. Um, blood magic, nice. bone magic, and spirit magic are three different types of magic in the system, by the way. So you get a bunch of different ways you could pull off things like necromancy or healing, mm -hmm. different ways you could be a werewolf or a vampire, you know, all that stuff. And it's all just supported in the skill lists. So, yeah, I I, I would go make a necropaladin in a heartbeat uh, for that template, but it just didn't fit in the core rules. So what are you calling this uh, Necro Paladin class? Ooh, probably yeah. the Dreadnought. The Dreadnought? Nice. Yeah. I was hoping. Yeah, because. Yep. 
No, go ahead. As much as I love the term Death Knight, um, might actually be copyright somewhere. <laughs> when you said beacon, uh, you you mentioned there's a beacon class. Uh, yeah, a beacon template. So they are. Um, let me get up to it. Uh, leaders, community members, and those that others turn to for guidance and inspiration in dark times, even though they may not ask for the job. I would make a beacon, but I would it would be a pun, so it's like a beak, B E E K O N, <laughs> and it's just a bird. It's yeah, a leader I bird. It. I love it. Yep, I love it. Just puns. It I love be, puns. It has to be a shoe bill. Yeah, makes sense to me. The uh, Muppet bird. <laughs> uh, Dread Knight or the Dreadnought and the Beacon. Changing yeah. reality. It'd be great. Oh, be yeah, fantastic. it'd be so great. <laughs> but that is going to do it for another episode of RPG University. Thank you so much, Crow, for coming on and kind of sharing your design philosophy with Ether. It sounds so, so cool. Thank you for letting me ramble for an hour. Oh, it, it was <laughs> a pleasure to to hear about it and the passion you have for this. And I can't wait to to see it take off. It does so many cool things. I can't wait to run my own games and play uh, play with this you, rule system as well. If you do, absolutely let me know. Um, I am excited to hear about it. The, the most exciting thing is when I see people saying that they're playing games with it. For sure. Uh, but no, and I know you mentioned it uh, a little bit uh, throughout the episode, but where can people find you online? Uh, what do you have cooking? What can people look forward to from you? When's your book coming uh, out? <laughs> Not anytime <laughs> soon, that's for sure. Um, so uh, you can find me at Eldritch Crow on Twitter. Twitter is my primary platform. So if you find me there, you'll know and have links to everything I do. I have a Ko-Fi link through there um, if you want to support me. I offer community copies uh, for all of my games and everything that I do. So if you uh, can't afford the game outright, you can wait for a community copy to show up. I add one to the pool for every purchase. So if you buy the game, you're also getting it for someone else, which is nice. Or if you donate to Ko-Fi, uh, I'll eventually add more to the pool once we hit a goal, which is also fun. And uh, yeah, you can find me on itch. Uh, link will be in the show notes, of course. And that's about it. Um, I've been on a variety of TTRPG related streams and things. I also used to stream myself and just haven't gotten back to it yet because I've been on a hiatus. Um, but hopefully I'll be back to that in the new year. Perfect. Well, can't wait. Congrats again on uh, coming up and designing such a unique and different take, an exciting take on uh, a tabletop role-playing game system. It's sounds so, so cool. I can't stress that enough. You all should check it out. Be sure, like I mentioned down in the show notes, there'll be a, a link that'll take you directly to uh, Crow's Itch account where you can buy your own copy of Ether. Uh, but for everyone else, thank you to each and every one of you who's listened today. Be sure to rate and review us on your preferred podcast service as I'd really appreciate it. If you have an RPG you'd like us to feature on an episode, tweet at underscore RPG University with the hashtag RPGU with your suggestion. You can also share your own favorite RPGs or memories directly with me on Twitter at SolidSnake120. As always, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another. Class dismissed.